All right, the book of Isaiah. All week has been Isaiah chapter 7 for the Bible study exercise. That's where we've been. And I can easily report, not even close, most, the most successful Bible study exercise we have ever done. More emails, more people sending me their work than had ever done, been participating. It's absolutely been crazy how many people have been involved. But we have worked on Isaiah 7 all week. Uh, I even brought the Bible study exercise to church on Wednesday night. That turned into an hour and 20 minute study. It went a little longer than I wanted to, but I felt that I was kind of trapped between getting to the verse that we needed to get to Wednesday night to show all of the problems. The only way to really do that was to do another walkthrough starting in Isaiah 7-1 going all the way through. So technically today should be the introduction of the next week's Bible study exercise, which I'll probably do this afternoon on the podcast. But what we're going to do is most of the people who emailed me with their work and all of the, all of doing all of the assignments, almost everyone agreed that there's no way that we can just study Isaiah 7 and ignore Isaiah chapter 8, since Isaiah chapter 8 may contain the answer to all of the problems that arises in Isaiah chapter 7. So, that's what we're going to do. We're going to move to Isaiah chapter 8 this morning, but I'm going to reestablish everything in Isaiah 7. We're going to do this as almost like a Bible study exercise. We'll do this a little bit. I mean, I could put it this way. I could do it this way. I could obviously do what a lot of pastors do, grab a couple of commentaries, grab the basic idea, create an outline, and then come here and go, Isaiah chapter 8, here's three little points, and everybody's like, oh, what a great little sermon, and then basically ignore and hide all of the difficulties found within the chapter. So let's remind ourselves, Isaiah chapter 7 is obviously a very, 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 very often quoted chapter as far as one verse is concerned. Which verse is that? Which verse is always quoted in Isaiah chapter 7? Okay, yeah, okay. hopefully everyone knows this, right? It's quoted a million times every Christmas season. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, which reads... Called, and his name will be Emmanuel. All right. That's quoted and quoted and quoted and quoted and quoted and quoted. Everyone quotes it. Everyone loves it. Pastors make reference to it. That's great. Everybody thinks it's wonderful. But what is typically occurs is everyone ignores all of the problems that arises from within the chapter because there are plenty. So just because everyone quotes Isaiah 7, everyone thinks it's so simple, doesn't mean that it is. And I, I, this is such, I, I'm going to try to give a practical, 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 practical point right here, okay? Because we're going to get into a lot of technical things here that can get very tedious, but this is very practical. I cannot state this enough. The problem with many churches isn't w- with what they say. The problem is with what they Never say. When you go to a church and they study Isaiah 7 and you walk away thinking that it's simple, straightforward, and easy, it's not because the passage is actually simple, straightforward, and easy. It's because the church is not willing to deal with all the complications that arise from within a passage. Pastors can preach a passage and make it sound like it's simple, straightforward, it's three points, and everyone gets to go home by noon. The only problem is by doing that, 
They are hurting you. Because you walk away thinking you understand a chapter when you don't even know, you don't even know where to begin. Like you haven't even scratched the surface. That's not a good thing. You have to be willing when you open up the Bible to deal with everything in a text, no matter how difficult it may be, no matter how confusing it may be, no matter how many times everyone has to leave the church going, I don't understand what in the world is going on, and I'm confused. If that's what has to happen, that's what has to happen. Now, if you want simple, easy, and three points, there's plenty of places that will give you that. I'm just telling you that you're hurting yourself, because what should be your ultimate goal and desire? To know the word, right? Yes? And guess what? The answers are not always easy. And this, this, these two chapters present so many problems. So, are we ready? Here we go. Isaiah chapter 7. Now, if it wasn't for one verse, Isaiah chapter 7 would be easy. But one verse causes the car to leave the road, the boat to sink, whatever description, the the, the building to catch on fire, whatever you want to use to describe it, everything goes wrong because of one verse. And if you were here Wednesday, you should know what verse that is. If it wasn't for that one verse, it would all make sense. So let's start. I'm just going to, I'm not going to have us read through it, but I'm just going to describe it. Isaiah chapter seven. It's pretty simple. All right. You have two kings, two nations who have come together. They've made a confederacy. Those two nations are whom? Syria and Israel. They've come together. They've made a confederacy. And who are they going after? The king of Judah, which is Ahaz. They're going out. And why are they upset with Ahaz? Syria... And Israel want to fight the Assyrians. They want to stop the the movement of the Assyrians, them gaining power, ground, and everything else. And they looked, and they want Ahaz to join them. And Ahaz is basically has said what? No, he's more pro Assyria, right? He wants to rely on the Assyrians. He wants he wants to look to them. And they're like, okay, fine, we're going to come. And what what do they plan to do? Take him out and put another king in place. Then, as a group, Judah, Israel, and Syria, then they could stop the advancement of the Assyrians. That's their plan. Ahaz doesn't want to go along, so now he's in trouble. Now, at the same time, Egypt, and there's a lot of things going on in history at this time, to make Ahaz, put it this way, to give him grave concern. Right? He's already suffered some attacks. Certain parts of the, of the place had already been taken. He's already greatly, 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 greatly concerned about what is happening. Right? And so in the midst, he's scared. The people of Judah are scared. They're all scared. They may be scared that Ahaz is making the wrong decision. I mean, you could just think about it if it was 24-hour news at that point. All of what the new, everybody would be yelling and debating on the news channel about Ahaz's decision. He's such a horrible leader. Why is he doing this? And, and who's good? And who, okay, you, you, could, you can look at it from our, our, our culture and it would make perfect sense. But who is sent to talk to Ahaz? Isaiah is sent to talk to Ahaz. And it's very interesting because Israel, or Israel uh, Isaiah is sent to speak to Ahaz, and he brings someone along with him. And who comes along with him? His young son, and his name is Shear Jeshub, right? Everybody remember that? That's in verse 3. 
And Shear Jishab, the name means what? A remnant will return. Okay, a remnant will return. And where do we find Ahaz when Isaiah shows up to talk to him? Verse 3. Okay, he's at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. Now, most likely they believe that what's happening is Ahaz is there because he's looking probably at the water supply and how this could be possibly used against them, demonstrating his concern and fear. And what else is it demonstrating? He's already got what? A plan. He's already got a plan on how to deal with this. And his plan is probably, is, and we, almost all of history will agree with this, his plan is to look for whom to help. He wants the Assyrians to help him against Israel and Syria. All right? Isaiah shows up with his son, Shur Jashub. And they're like, okay. And it, it's, it's just weird. He brings his son along. Why is he bringing his son along? Well, the name means a remnant will return. There's something symbolic about this child. Okay, so then what does Isaiah tell Ahaz? He's like, hey, don't worry, be calm. This is not going to happen. However, he does tell him how bad the situation is, right? They're coming to take you out and replace you. Everything so far, none of this is difficult to understand. Agreed? Okay, so this is where Ahaz plays a little game. All right. God, to give him encouragement, because Ahaz is really scared, he's like, look, you can ask a sign. Anyway, you can ask a sign in the heavens. You can ask the sign on earth. You ask a sign, and I will give you a sign to demonstrate that you don't have anything to worry about, nothing to fear. And Ahaz, it's not a godly response. Listen to me. He uses spirituality. He uses scripture To cover up his own motives. This is a problem every Christian in this room is capable of doing. We can take scripture to try to justify that we're going to do what we want. Hear me again. It's easy for people to take scripture, use scripture to justify doing exactly what they want. All right? We've all, we've all seen that before. You've all experienced it. I mean, I can get very practical here. This, I, I want Look, and all of the difficulties in this passage, don't miss the practical teaching here. Because what does Ahaz do? What, what did he do? Isaiah says, hey, God, you can, be, you can ask for a sign. And what does Ahaz say? Well, no, look specifically. I will not ask and I will not tempt the Lord. He's borrowing from Scripture, Deuteronomy and some other passages. He's using Scripture. It sounds spiritual, right? I could never ask of a sign. I don't want to tempt the Lord. Is he worried about tempting the Lord? No, what does he want to do? He wants to to call on the Assyrians to help him out. That's what he wants. I cannot stress this enough. Be very careful when you use scripture to justify what you want to do. People are, people are very good at this. If, if, if Christians want to move somewhere, they'll use scripture to justify, well, we think we should move for this reason and this reason. Just be honest and just say you want to move? You don't need to find 15 scriptural justifications for it, Right? People decide that they want to leave the church. They feel like they have to have a scriptural justification. 
Why pretend? You want to leave. You're going to leave. You're just finding some scriptural justification to make you feel better about your decision. Don't use scripture to cover up your own selfish motive. Does that make sense? Just be honest. Now, nobody wants to be honest, so we always have to cover everything up in our little church church answers to make ourselves feel better. That's what Ahaz is doing. All right? So far, does everything make sense? So then what does God say? Through, through the prophet. All right? You don't want a sign? I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And what is the sign? A virgin will be with child, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Now, at this point, you could ask it. What, what, what question could you ask at this point? No, you could ask this. What does that have to do with Ahaz if that child we identify as Jesus according to Matthew chapter 1, 18 and following, right? So we're like, what does this have to do with Ahaz? Because that's not going to happen for how many years? 700 plus. All right? So what does it have to do with Ahaz? Now, what could be a simple answer here? Simple answer could be, well, it doesn't have anything to do with Ahaz because Ahaz didn't want to sign. So God is going to ultimately give a sign to the house of Judah or to the line of David, demonstrating what? I said I would keep a king on the throne, and I'm going to provide that king. I'm going to keep my promise. So that, hey, Ahaz, you don't want the sign, but I'll give an ultimate sign. If we stop right there, you could argue it makes sense, yes? Okay, fine. Problem solved. It's not, it's not, we don't need to find any historical anything. Everything's great. Next verse is verse 15, right? Now, verse 15 seems to speak about the child. What does it say about the child in verse 15? All right, he's going to eat curds and honey. Another translation says butter and honey. Okay, right? Now, there's all kinds of debate about what this means. Some say, well, this demonstrates that when this child is born, it's going to be a time of great poverty, and they're not going to have a lot, so the only thing you can eat is butter and honey. Others say, no, butter and honey was normal for children to eat. Whatever the case may be, what, what, could, what, what conclusion could we draw from it? It's going to be a literal child who's going to be a physical human being who's going to eat. All right? So in other words, it's not going to be some spiritual being. Okay, what else does it say about the child? It's going to eat butter and honey. It's going to refuse evil. All right? Now, all of that could fit Jesus, right? He was a real baby. Yes? Ate real food. And he refused evil. So at this point, do we have any problems? Passage makes perfect sense, yes? Until? In fact, skip verse 16. 17 and following. Do we have any problems with 17 to the end of the chapter? 17 to the end of the chapter is easily summarized. You want to know what the summary is? Hey, Ahaz, you want to look to the Assyrians? Go ahead, look to the Assyrians. Look to the ones you think are going to save you because they're going to come upon you and bring death, destruction, and chaos. Go ahead and look to them. Now, what's the practical lesson from that? Christianity, throughout 2,000 years of church history, constantly looks to the wrong things to supposedly save us. In 2021, it's the church constantly looking to politics to somehow save everything, when that's never the answer, never has been the answer, never will be the answer. So there's a practical implication here. Don't look to a false savior. Ahaz, you don't want Emmanuel? You don't want me? You want the Assyrians? Get the Assyrians. And look what's going to happen. 17 following describes that. Is that complicated? 
So everything makes sense in the chapter, right? Until verse 16. That's when everything catches on fire. Because verse 16 says what about, listen to how I'm going to say this, a child. What does it say about a child? Okay, when he reaches the age of being able basically to discern between good and evil, is that a great way of putting it? Yes. Then what's going to happen? The land that you abhor, seeming to be speaking to Ahaz, right? Yes. When the child reaches this age, the land that you abhor, what's going to happen to it? And the land, we think, is the idea that it's Israel and Syria coming together, so it's described as one land because they're in confederacy. That the two kings, and who are the two kings? Go back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. Rezin and Pekah, right? Those two kings are going to be what? Laid to waste. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. They think that the age of that child would be about what to reach that point? To, to understand this difference between good and evil. All right. Most would say between three and four. Okay, You could put, you could put 12. I mean, it doesn't take long for a child to know. that They know when they're doing wrong, right? They know when they're doing wrong. Hopefully before 12. Like Stephen's obviously very lenient as a parent. Hey, you can't do anything until they turn 12 because they don't know the difference. I, okay, that's pretty, I, I would say before that, okay. But around three or four, okay. So it must be nice to be raised in that home, okay, right? Hey, I, I would say I'm still 11. I'm still 11. I'm still 11, okay. I don't know the difference between good and evil. I just stole the car and burned the house down, but okay, no. So you get the idea, right? Now, why is this a problem? Oh, yeah, it happens, yeah. Way before Jesus comes along, way before Jesus comes along, way before Jesus comes along. Like, most believe it happens just a couple of years after this prophecy. So if it happens just a couple of years after this prophecy, what? like, hey, Ahaz, that land you abhor, 700 years from now... Those two kings, those two kings are going to be gone in a couple of years. So clearly that can't be a reference to Jesus. If it's a reference to Jesus, it makes absolutely no sense. So what child is it? So what are the options? Okay, some say it's Isaiah's child. Which child? Shearer Jashub, the one that's with him. So some translate it this way. Hey, Ahaz. Hey, that land that you abhor before this child? And he points to Shear or Jashub. Before he reaches that age, those two kings are going to be gone. Well, the only problem is, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. When did the text jump from different children, right? You see everyone, the problem? And so, and so what, what's our options? It's Shear or Jashub, so the text changes, but we don't know how. Some believe, well, no, this has to be the Emmanuel, it's a different child. It's not Shear or Jashub. It's the Emmanuel. So some other child is going to be born and going to reach that age, and then those two kings are be gone. That's a problem because now you're like, well, wait a minute. Emmanuel is referring to Jesus. So are you saying is there two different children here? What do we do with that? How do, how do we understand that, right? So there's lots of dispute here. Some will try to say, well, wait a minute. By the time Jesus reaches that age, 
those kings are gone. But those kings were gone way before Jesus is even born, right? I mean, they're gone within a couple of years of this. So there's all kinds of disputes, and most people just do what? Just skip it. Just ignore it, and everybody will go around and send out a Christmas card with Isaiah 7.14 in it without ever any, you know, who cares about the problems of the context? There's issues. So we've asked all of those questions, right? So that brings us to where? Chapter 8. Chapter 8. Everybody ready? All right. Any questions about any of that? No? Yes? No? Okay, good. I did the best I could to summarize that. I could, I could read a couple of things to do a better summary, but I wanted to w- walk through that one more time, okay? All right, I know redundancy, but that's the only way you, you, you learn is to know it. Y'all should have chapter 7 down, okay? And everybody see why verse 16 causes a problem, correct? Some of you may be going, I don't see a problem. If you don't see a problem, then we need to stop and talk. Okay, all right? There's a problem, all right? So we go to chapter eight. Here we go. Moreover, the Lord said unto me. Now, who's, who's the me here? Isaiah, all right? God's going to speak to Isaiah. Take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's pen concerning Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Oh boy, we got another, we got another son coming along. So now we have three sons specifically mentioned. Who's the first one? Sheer Jashub. Second? No, Emmanuel. Okay, and, okay. and then the third one? Mehar Shal Al Hashbaz. All right? That's, if you need a name for a kid, there you go. All right? Or a dog or whatever, okay? Now, three different Children. Now, you've got to find that somewhat interesting just from a textual perspective, yes? Two chapters, three children. What, what, what is the significance of them, all right? So that's what we're going to try to figure out. Now, what is the significance about the name of Mehar Shalal Hashbaz, if I can say his name correctly? It means, are you ready? Mehar Shalal Hashbaz means, and you'll see some variations of this, swift to plunder and quick to to carry away. Swift to plunder and quick to carry away. Now, does that sound encouraging? Well, it depends on who the one's going to be carried away. Who's going to be plundered and who's going to be carried away? Right? Who's going to be who's going to be carried away? If it's if it's Judah, that's not good. That's not a comforting word to Ahaz, is it? If it's Israel and Syria, that's comforting. So who, who, why is this child there? The other child's name meant what? Sherah Jashub meant a remnant will return. Mehar Shalal Hashbaz. What, what does his name mean? I just, I guess you told you. Yeah, all right. Quick, quick uh, I'll read it again to you so that everybody can have this down written out. You need to have these memorized. Swift to plunder and quick to carry away. Everybody see that? All right. Now, what's... All right, well, we'll just, we'll, we'll just go to verse 2. All right. So, verse 1, no complications. Now, there is some 
Most believe that it's been about a year, and we'll we'll talk about this in a minute. Uh, We'll back up and talk, talk about this in a second. Some believe it's been about a year has passed since what we read in chapter seven. Some believe it's been about a year. Now, if it's been about a year, why would that be significant? Well, if that has, if, if that's the case, then Ahaz doesn't need any more encouragement, right? But if it hasn't happened, Ahaz may be getting really worried and concerned about his situation, right? Maybe. No, no. Just, just a thought, just a thought. Right? So there's a possible time, time gap, okay? What happens in verse 2? And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebekiah. Now, a couple of things. We can sit there and try to identify all of these individuals, and there's some dispute and debate about who these individuals are, but we almost all, almost all Bible commentaries agree that these are individuals of some prominence. They have some prominence, there's something about them, and so why are they brought along? Why do you think they're brought along? As a witness. You bring prominent people to witness this. That means what is happening here is significant. It's not just like Seth going out into the, you know, the parking lot and riding out, you know, Lincoln and Levi and just set up a sign in front of the church. I mean, we would all be like, okay, well, I don't know what you're doing, Seth, but okay, we'll have a sign in front of the church that says Lincoln and Levi, right? Okay, that, that, we probably wouldn't see that there's much significance to that than maybe Seth been hit in the head too many times, right? This obviously is super significant. So that means, there's, that means what, what does it want us to do as a reader? Take note. There's something significant here about this child. Mehar Hashbaz. There's something significant here. What is significant about him? What is going on? All right. Then we'll jump down to verse 3. I want to just read through it, but I'm going to, I'm going to back up in a minute and I'm going to go through some different commentaries. Uh, but here we go. Verse 3. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, call his name Mehar Shal al Hashbaz. All right. So we start off with the writing down of the name. Everyone witnesses it. He then goes in unto his wife. They have relations, and then they're going to conceive and bear a son. Now, we just have to at least get this out of the way because it always shows up. His wife is referred to as what? A prophetess. Now, a lot of people go crazy here for a lot of reasons. Number one, some people use this to justify women pastors. All right, what's the problem with that, with that logic? Let's just, we got to have, I don't want to have to address this, but we have to. What's the problem with using this as proof that, so, so, that women can be pastors? Well, but, well, even let's say that it did. Okay, okay. Well, the main thing is we're where? 700 years before the New Testament church. The rules govern the New Testament church are not derived from the book of Isaiah. They're derived from the New Testament epistles that describe the organization of the church, right? Okay, so that, that's number one. Number two, this is very important. If... This somehow proves women preachers. Then why in the world would Paul, who would very much be very familiar with Old Testament scripture, yes, 
because he was very much a Jew, correct? Why would he then violate the Old Testament scriptures by creating a different policy? Makes no sense. So clearly, anyone reading this would not come to the conclusion that that's justifying women pastors. Now, another thing, very important to know about the culture. Why do you think, why, according to that culture, why do you think she's called a prophetess? Do I? Because Isaiah is a prophet. She receives the name prophetess not because of anything she's doing or can do. It's to, it's to honor her husband. I know, ladies, you may not like that, but in that culture, it was about the man, not about the woman. All right? Whatever we like or hate about it, that's just the way it was. So she receives the name to honor whom? Husband. It's about him. So whether you like that or not, and most sources would agree with that. I I didn't want to spend a lot of time with that, but we at least have to address it because it always shows up. All right. And I went in unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, call his name Mehar Shaal Hashbaz. All right. So this child, we know when this child is being born right here, right? So, So just think about it. He writes the name. He goes in under her. How long is it going to be before the child is born? Okay. Oh, well, y'all are pretty good. Okay. Nine months. Okay. How did y'all, y'all are good at math. Or, okay. Or y'all just, okay. Right. Obviously, this means there's going to be a time period here. Yes? Now, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother. Or now we're getting very specific. Yes? Does this not sound like verse 16? It sounds like verse 16, but now it gets even more specific. Before the child can say what? Mommy or daddy, right? Before it can even say that, which is about a year. Okay, I think most would say. So now, from the time he writes the name, relations with the wife, nine months, so you're, about a, you're almost about a year there. Then the child's going to have to grow for a year. Now you're about two years. Two years. Right? Now, and if we think that this is a year removed from the prophecy in Isaiah 7, now we have three years. Total of three years that's passed, right? Okay, now what happens? Before this child can uh, say mother or father, what happens? The riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king before the king of Assyria. Now we have another prophecy specifically telling us what is going on. Now, we're going to back up. We're going to read some different commentaries on verse 1, 2 and 3 to see some different insights that they provide. Right? And see if we can develop what's going on here. Right? So far, so good? Okay. Now, what, what, what's, from a hermeneutical perspective, what's a big question that we need to be having in our mind right now? What's a big question that needs to be in your mind right now from a hermeneutical perspective or just as a good Bible student? What's an important question that should be in everyone's mind right now? I'm going to wait and see if anybody can answer or I'll look... Do what? No, no, no. Just, we're in chapter 8. 
So what important question should be on your mind right now when you, as we start reading chapter 8? What does, does this have any connection to chapter 7? Anything in chapter 7. Does it have any connection? We still have Isaiah. and Isaiah 7, did we not have a child mentioned? Shara Jashub. Did we not have Emmanuel mentioned? Yeah. Now we have a third child mentioned, right? Is there anything? And what else do we have here? Two countries are going to be destroyed by whom? Assyria. So we, do we, we, you, can you see some possible connection between the two? All right, so we want to keep that in mind, and we'll see how they relate and what they do or don't do for one another, okay? In other words, we left seven with some unanswered questions. Everybody agree? So what could we be hoping for? Hopefully eight will give answers, or eight could just provide more questions, right? Okay, we'll we'll have to see. All right, so now let's go. We're going to back back up, and we're going to look at some different commentaries. All right, everybody ready? Okay. Uh, okay, so now, just remember verse 16 of chapter 7 says before the child reaches that certain point, that what's going to happen? Two kings, the two kings are going to be what? Removed, yes? So, according to one commentary, so, so far shall Rezin and Pekah be from conquering the land that they shall lose their own lands and their own lives too, which they did within two years after this time, being both slain by the king of Assyria. Chapter 7, verse 16. Yeah. So two years from that. Now you're like, oh, wait. So now, well, wait a minute. Now we've got this other son. It, it, it does, that other son seems to be a little further out than that, Yes. Possibly? Like, so, so is it completely something separate or different? But that's something we'll have to consider. To, figuring out these timelines can be very problematic. But the main thing I want you to realize is, again, these two kings are destroyed by whom? Assyria. Assyria. Can't, can't, please keep that in mind, all right? Assyria is the problem for everyone here. Is, is Assyria going to be a problem for Israel? Yes. Is Assyria going to be a problem for Syria? Yes. Is Assyria going to be a problem for Judah? Yes, okay, keep that in mind. They're a problem for everyone, right? So far, so good. Now, chapter 8, verse 1, let's read it again. Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll and write in, write in it with a man's pen concerning Mahar shall al Hashbaz. Now, here's what some commentaries say. The prophecy that follows was clearly separated by an interval of some kind, probably about a year from that in Isaiah chapter 7. In the meantime, much that had happened seemed to cast discredit on the prophet's words. So what they are saying, that when you have all of what Isaiah says in chapter 7, it's been about a year. And everything that's going on in the world seems to make it look like that Isaiah was a false prophet and full of garbage, and nobody should listen to him, because the situation is not working the way he seemed to describe. So, according to this, people could be like, Isaiah, what are you talking about? Now, if that's true, what would be necessary? To offer something else, or to offer something that will help clarify, or give him some kind of assurance? Yes? Now, you could ask, why does Ahaz need any assurance? He already turned down a sign. God's mercy, God's grace, right? 
Now, let's see what else they have to say here. The child that was the type of the great Emmanuel had been born. Now, please note, they, they're saying that some child that was like Emmanuel had been born. Now, I don't know. That, that's a lot of speculation, yes? We, we, don't, we don't know if that has happened or, or, or how, why they would even think that, okay? Um, but there was no signs as yet of the downfall of the northern kingdom. The attack of Rezin and Pekah, though Jerusalem had not been taken, had inflicted an almost, an almost irreparable blow on the kingdom of Judah. Multitudes had been carried captive to Damascus. The Edomites were harassing the southeastern frontier. The commerce of the Red Sea was cut off by Rezin's capture of Elath. To the weak and faithless Ahaz and his counselors, it might well have seemed that the prospect was darker than ever, that there was no hope in the protection of Assyria. If such was the state of things when the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, was he to recant and confess that he had erred? Was he to shrink back in silence and obscurity? For otherwise than that, he was to repeat all that he had said more definitely and more in a more demonstrative way than ever. So what they're claiming is, everything had gotten worse. Ahaz had to be thinking, what in the world? And Isaiah had to start looking like he was a fool and didn't know what he was talking about. So what they are saying, that in chapter 8, Isaiah shows up in a sense to kind of repeat what's already been said, but in a more clear and dogmatic way. Now, if that's true, then he's not offering a new prophecy. It's a, basically a retelling of the previous prophecy. Now, is that accurate? Is that true? Well, we'll have to see. That, that's one way of possibly looking at it. So far, so good? All right, now verse 2. He takes unto him the, the witnesses, right? One commentary, that the prophet's challenge to his gainsayers might be made more emphatic the setting up of the tablet is to, be a for, is to be formally attested. And the witnesses whom the prophet calls were probably men of high position among those who had been foremost in advising the alliance with Assyria. Most likely, these individuals he calls were people who had been, in, who'd been advising um, Ahaz to uh, align with, uh, with Assyria. Now, why is he doing this? Why is he bringing all these people together? Everything's getting bad. They're all looking at him like, you don't know what you're talking about. It's like, okay, okay, okay. Come on, come on, everyone. Let's have a meeting. All right, we're going to write this name down. You watch. You watch. You watch. It's to establish that, no, I'm not wrong here. I'm, God has not for, forgotten his promises. My prophecy has not failed. Right. So in other words, this is a pretty, this is a pretty important situation. Right now, verse 3. What happens in verse 3? I went in unto the prophetess and conceived and bare a son. And then the Lord, uh, and the Lord said to me, call his name Meharshel al-Hashbaz. Right? So we, we got that. That's pretty straightforward. Now, verse 4. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. Here's a, here's a couple of commentaries. Everybody ready? The sign of Emmanuel 
and I love the way they say this, was hard to understand. Okay. All right. Can everyone agree that it may be hard? What, what would make that hard to understand? Well, first, now there's some dispute here. If we understand that word virgin to be virgin, that's going to be very hard to understand. Right? A virgin's going to conceive, right? Okay, so that may be a little hard right there. Two, Emmanuel, God with us, is this, and, and the fact that it's possibly not going to even happen for 700 years, it could be very hard and a lot of confusion could be there. Okay, I think we can all agree with that, yes? Right? Now, we, we can explain it away by saying, well, Ahaz, you didn't want a sign, you don't get a sign. That, that could be a possible explanation, but what happens here? In its more spiritual sense, it appealed to, the, to faith and an event far distant. So they, they say in its spiritual sense, this prophecy would require faith to look out to something that's going to happen 700 something years from now. I don't know what good that would do for Ahaz. I mean, let's, be, let's, not act, let's not act super spiritual here. If you're in Ahaz's situation, you don't need something to happen 700 years from now. What does he need? He needs something right now. Okay? If, you, if you're in a situation, right? And like, okay, you get a phone call. Look, they're coming to your house. They're going to break in and they're going to kill you. Okay? And then the prophet shows up with his kid and goes, hey, don't worry about it. It's never going to happen. You're like, but, and then the phone rings again. They're getting closer. And you look, they're getting close. Hey, don't worry about it. 700 years from now, something's going to happen. <laughs> and you're like, that's, I need someone to help me right now. Correct? Right? You, you may not keep listening to this person giving you these prophecies. You may say, well, my neighbor, he's got lots of guns. I'm going to call him over to help me out. Right? That's kind of what's going on here, right? You, these people are coming to kill me. You want me to wait for some promise? My neighbor over there, the Assyrians, they'll help me out. That's kind of the, the, the place that Ahaz is in. So, so you can see that he's in a difficult situation. You can see that maybe he's, he, he needs to know what, what's going on here, right? Now listen to what they say. Even in its literal import, it was not calculated to cheer and encourage more than just a few since neither the maiden nor the child was pointed out with any distinctness. That even if this was going to be beneficial, it was only going to be beneficial to a couple of people because it's in Isaiah 7.14. Is the mother named? No. It's the child has just said that he's going to be called Emmanuel. So we're not given any distinct information. So this promise would not bring any encouragement to basically anyone. All right? So you can see where there would still be some concern. All right? A fresh sign was therefore given by God's goodness to reassure the mass of the people. So basically what they're saying is what Isaiah is going to do, he's going to kind of repeat the promises that he's already given, but what, they're, what's, what is there going to be? A new sign. A new sign. This would have everything to do still with Isaiah 7, correct? All right, so what is this new sign? Let's see what they have to say here. Um. A fresh sign was therefore given by God's goodness to reassure the mass of the people. A sign about which there was nothing obscure or difficult. So now he's going to give a sign that is not confusing. That's not difficult. 
that's easy to understand. Sounds good? So what is going to be this sign and what's going to be so easy to understood? This is what they have to say here, all right? Um, Isaiah himself should have a son born to him almost immediately to whom he should give a name indicating the rapid approach of the spoiler and before this child should be able to utter his first words, which childhood early ordinarily pronounces father or mother, Damascus and Samaria should be taken. So in other words, this sign, what, what's going to make this sign more clear? Well, now you got witnesses, but is the father identified? Is the mother identified? Is the child identified? And is the time period even clearly identified? Yes. So it's clear, and it's going to be, Sarah just said it, quick. That's, that's much better. What would you rather have? A sign that's immediately, or a sign that you don't even understand that's not going to happen for 700 years? That really doesn't have anything to do with you. Which would you prefer? Oh, come on, let's, no, let's not pretend. We, we, we want the immediate sign, okay? We want the immediate sign. So far, so good? Does that make some kind of sense? Right? Here then was another sign like that of Isaiah 7, 14 through 16. The two witnesses were probably summoned to the circumcision and naming of the child, and the mysterious name at which all Jerusalem had gazed with wonder was given to the newborn infant. The prediction, uh, the, uh, the prediction, if I can find where I'm at here, I'm getting all these notifications on my iPad, okay, um, the prediction is even more definite than before. Before the first cries of childhood should be uttered within a year of its birth, the spoils of the two capitals of the kings of the Confederate armies should be carried to the king of Assyria. The conclusion of the period thus defined would coincide more or less closely with a longer period assigned at an earlier date in Isaiah 7.16. So let me read this again. The conclusion of the period thus defined, would coincide more or less closely with the longer period assigned at an earlier date in Isaiah 7.16. They say that if you take Isaiah 7.16 and put this together, it kind of coincides to some level. Now, this, me, this raises questions. So is Isaiah 7.16, was it pointing to Meharshal al-Hashbaz ultimately? Or was it po- pointing to his brother, right, Sherejashib, which one was it? Because obviously Mehar Shal Hashbaz becomes obviously the, the key to understanding the promise. Is it connected to 716? Historically, the, the, the Transjordanic region and Damascus fell before whom? Everybody know who it falls before? Everybody should know. Tilgath Pulneser III, right? Everybody should know this, right? Tilgath Pulneser. Uh, Samaria was besieged by Salmaneser before his successor Sargon. And you can read all of this in 2 Kings 15, 2 Kings 16, and 2 Kings 17. All right? So they're saying this all coincides. So now, Mehar shall al-Hashbaz. Now, you see, do you see where a lot of people then start having issues? So wait a minute. 
Is, is Emmanuel a different sign? I think the only way, to my, the only way I can understand this is, is Emmanuel is a completely different sign. It's a completely different sign. Verse 16, is that, who is that referring to? Who is verse 16 referring to? Mehar Shal al-Hashbaz or Sheran Jeshub, if I can get his name correctly. I'm not looking at it, right? Or does it matter? Well, it matters because we want to figure out what God's word has to say. There's still a lot of issues in chapter 8 we have to figure out. But you see now, okay, we do know this. We can be dogmatic about this. Whatever the confusion was, whatever the problem was, Isaiah is clearly now given instructions about Mehar Shal al-Hashbaz because that seems to be the thing to do what? What, what? what is his whole, what's the significance of him in this entire situation? Well, Mehar Shal al-Hashbaz, it, does he not clarify all the problems? Like, if, when we're leaving chapter 7, are we confused with what's going on in verse 16? Yes. Agreed? So, maybe Ahaz was confused. Chapter 8 comes along, and now, like, okay, you're confused? Here's the clarification. This child right here. Now, there's no, now there's no dispute. There's no question. Now, maybe... I don't know what you still, I still don't know exactly what to do with verse 16, but at least now we know that it's very clear. When that child, before it says mommy and daddy, these kings are going to be gone. And we know historically that that seems to take place in that way, and that, that it's accurate and happens that way. Does that make sense? Yes? All right. Now, let's, let's I'm going to read one more commentary here. Before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father to speak uh, and know his parents, which is within the space, they say, of two years. And this agrees with the other prophecy, Isaiah 7, 16. All right? So again, all of these commentaries want to connect which two prophecies? 7, 16 and 8, 1 and following. They want to connect the two. Now, if we connect the two, you have to ask, well, wait a minute, then, is that prophecy, like, do the, how do both kids fit into this? The, the results of the prophecy are the same. There's no question. Those two kings are going away. Now, but it does raise questions. Well, what do we do with verse 16? I don't know, but everyone connects the two. So, but you're right. The results are the same. The results at least are the same. They go on to say, for it required, now this is, now listen carefully for how they're going. I'm going to read this all together. Everybody got thinking caps on? All right. Before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father mother, etc., to speak and know his parents, which is within the space of two years, and this agrees with the other prophecy, Isaiah seven sixteen. For it requires a longer time for a child to know to refuse the evil and choose the good than to distinguish his parents from strangers. And Shira Jashub, being born some years before this child, was capable of that higher degree of knowledge as soon as this was capable of the lower degree. In other words, Shira Jashub, he had to reach what age? The age to do what? Go back to 716. Choose right and wrong. Mayar Shal al-Hashbaz just has to reach the age of doing what? They're saying the two come together 
at the same time. Now, if that's true, then that absolutely demands that Isaiah 7.16 is not speaking about Jesus. It's speaking about whom? No, 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 no. Okay, Sher Jashub has to reach what age? Yeah, so, okay, let's go through this again. Share Jashub, what, what does he have to reach before those two kings go away, according to 7.16? Right and wrong. Mayor Shal Ahashbaz has to reach what level? Here's the thing. They are claiming that both kids reached that level at the same time, and that occurred. Demonstrating then, 716 is not about Meharshal Hashbaz, it's about Sher Jashub. So therefore, think about it, Ahaz ultimately was given how many signs? Three. Yeah, the Emmanuel one, he doesn't know what in the world's going on there, right? Obviously, he didn't even... Re- but you know what? It's not about whether he understood or not. He didn't care. He didn't want any of the signs. It's just absolutely crazy that someone who doesn't want a sign is basically given three. So then 716 is about Shear Jashub, right? Clearly, it doesn't make sense to be about Emmanuel. I don't know why the text is written the way it is but we just have to acknowledge it doesn't make any other sense. And then Isaiah 8 comes along and says, okay, okay, here you go. You're still doubting? You're still scared? Here you go. Now, almost immediate results. Does that, does that make at least some level of sense? All right. So let me read this again. Before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father, mother, to speak and know his parents, which is uh, within the space of two years, and agrees with the other prophecy, 716. For it requires a longer time for a child to know to refuse the evil and choose the good than to distinguish his parents from the strangers. And Shira Jashub, being born some years before this child, was capable of that higher degree of knowledge as soon as this was capable of the lower degree. The riches of Damascus shall be taken away. The kingdoms of Syria and Israel here signified by their two capital cities shall be stripped of their wealth and power as they were by whom? Tilgath, Polnizer, within the time here limited. And they say, see 2 Kings 15. So does everybody get that? All right. Now, um, Let's go back to chapter 8. We're going to have to stop here. Chapter 8, verse 1. All right, let's read it again. Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll, write uh, with a man's pen concerning Meharshal al Hashbaz. And I took unto me a faithful witness to record Uriah, uh, to uh, record Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of Jerbekiah. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then shall the Lord to me. Uh, then said the Lord to me, "Call his name Meharshal al Hashbaz, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria." Stop right there. Now, what can we derive from all of this? Well, a couple of things. Let's just go through some practical uh, ramifications here. 
Number one, let's just remind ourselves, that Ahaz tries to use spirituality in order to justify and cover up his own motives. That's something that everyone has to ask. You always have to ask yourself, are you using Christianity in any way to simply get what you want and to justify your actions? Right. I'll, just, I'll use this as an example because this one, the, the, the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, just ended uh, last night. It was the last episode. And every episode, I've, I can't even tell you how emotional I get listening to all of it. It has been so sad, so horrible to listen to. The, the, the absolute destruction. The, talking, the last episode spent a lot of time talking to all the people who stayed and was there when it all fell apart. You got people now who've been diagnosed with PTSD because of everything that happened there. People who are now addicted to drugs. People who killed themselves. It's absolutely horrifying the destruction that was left in the wake of the fall of that church. Listening to those people talk, I mean, I was literally in tears listening to it. Those people's lives have been completely destroyed, right? Panic attacks, anxiety. I mean, the things those people went through in the destruction of that church is horrible, right? Now, Mark Driscoll, they, they asked him to respond to the podcast. He didn't respond. You can still listen to Mark Driscoll. He's preaching in Arizona. He's now you know, back to another big church, and he just left all of those people, and their lives are destroyed. And if you remember how it all went down, he, was, he, was, he had stepped down, and they were going through a restoration process, right? And he went, peace out, gone, just left them. And you know why he said he left them? Story's famous now. God told him. Supposedly he was in one room of the house. His wife was in another room of the house. They're, 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 and they basically God told him, it's a trap. It's a trap. They're not there to restore you. It's a trap. And then he walked into the other room and his wife's there. And I guess she was like in tears and saying, God just spoke to me. And he's like, well, God spoke to me. What did he tell you? We've got to leave. And so they leave, pack up, leave the church, falls completely and utterly apart. Millions of dollars of debt. They got property. I mean, it's just a night. Just listening to everything they had to go through and figuring out what to do with all the property. It was just an absolute destruction. But he says God told him and then did what? Peace out. Boom. Went to Arizona. Started another church and everything's good. All the people left there within shambles. Now, so therefore, he used God as his excuse. That's one of the reasons I hate when people say God told me anything. I hate that with every ounce of my being because I don't believe God speaks to that way. He speaks through scripture. But he used, he used God. Now, sticking, sticking there, staying there, would it have been pleasant for him to stay there? No, man, they, the whole world was losing their minds. Everybody was like, they basically crucify Mark Driscoll. The same people who were like, he's amazing. They wanted him dead, right? The plagiarism charges and all of his books, all the things that were going down. It was just crazy. Everything was full. Everything was imploding. I, I would want to run too. I'd want to pack up the car and like go change my name, right? I can understand that. But he, he left and used God as his reason for leaving. We find all kinds of reasons to justify what we want to do. Ahaz wanted to work with the Assyrians. So he found reasons to, to, to do so. But even though he was trying to do his own thing, God was giving him signs saying, no, trust me, follow me. Don't use your spirituality to cover up your own selfish motives. Don't do that. 
It, it drives me crazy, you know? I mean, I've watched it. I've been a pastor. People walk up to you, you know, God, I feel like God's telling us to leave the church. Well, you, well, what if I told you God told me that you're not supposed to leave the church? Who are we going to listen to? Now, I never say that, but it just in a church that we don't even believe that God speaks outside of Scripture, people would still walk up to me and tell me God told me to leave the church. I'm like, when did you reject the doctrine of sola scriptura? But they, you, they'll pull out anything to justify what they want to do. It just drives me crazy when people pull that game. Why, can't we just be honest? Right? If I want to stop by Allsup's and get seven burritos, a bag of Doritos, and a big red for lunch, do I need to say God told me to do that? Or can I just say that's what I want? Right? We, 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 I hate the the fraudulent spirituality that Christians will pull out. So that's, that's lesson number one. No, and what's lesson number two? I cannot stress this. We have God's word telling us that our Savior is Emmanuel, that salvation is from Christ, that what we look to is the Great Commission. And whenever we pro- people see problems in the world, they're like, okay, what do we need? We need to get this person elected as president. And we need to boycott this. And we need to fight this. And we need to stand this. And we need to go stop the steal. And we need, to re- we need to break into the Capitol building. And we need to go yell at school board meetings and yell and scream about critical race theory. We turn and look to everything else to save us and stop all of our problems when Christianity has always been called to focus on what? Teach. Baptize teach. That's a great commission. Does a great commission anything about fighting culture wars? No. Because what do people ultimately need? Do do people need to be argued out of their views about gender? Do you need to argue them about the LGBTQ movement? What do they need? A savior The Savior isn't the Republican Party. The Savior isn't to beat them in a debate about their culture war that you're so wrapped up in. They need salvation. What was Ahaz looking for? A Savior for his cultural issues. And he looked to Assyria, and the thing he looked to was the thing that ultimately destroyed him. I see this all the time about politics. Politicians use the church for their own means, and we're the bride of Christ. We act like prostitutes laying down for every political party to use us, and when they're done using us, they're going to disregard and cast us aside. That's not what we're here about. We're not here to please the latest political movement. We're here to please Christ, we're the bride of Christ, and the only hope of salvation is not found in a political alliance, but it's found in Jesus Christ. What was Ahaz looking for? A political alliance. And God kept saying, no, no, look to me. We already saw in Isaiah 7 how bad it's going to get when Assyria comes in. Now, we're going to read the rest in chapter 8, and we got a bunch of other things to figure out that are complicated as well. But so far, we, we have, we, it now makes sense. Does it make sense now? 7.16, we think, refers to whom? Sherar Jashub. Chapter, and why do we need another prophecy? Because there was confusion and nothing had happened yet. So now another son comes along. You see the differences in time frames between the two sons? 
Now you can basically, what they think is you feel like those two sons' time frames can then be brought together, and around about the same time, they both reach that level, and then boom, there's, there's the fulfillment. God keeps his promise, even though Ahaz rejected it. God keeps his promise to Israel, even though they reject it. And God keeps his promise to you, even though you find yourself doing what? Rejecting it. God is always faithful, even when we are faithless. That's an important lesson from here. All right, we'll stop right there. Look, we come before you this morning. Very important chapter. Very important time of year that we actually know what's going on in these chapters and we don't just rip verses out of context for a Christmas card, but we really understand the significance of what's going on here and the very important spiritual lessons contained within. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus and God's people said...